Hey everybody, this is Work in Progress, an art gallery of Greater Victoria podcast where you'll hear from artists, staff, collaborators, and even different hosts as we go behind the scenes to explore AGGV projects in progress. I'm Marina DeMaio, the Digital Assets Coordinator at the AGGV and your host for this episode. The HGV is located on the unceded traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, today known as the Esquimalt and Songhees nations. Um, and that's where I'm zooming in from today. But for the purposes of this episode, we'll also be hearing from folks who are joining from Dish With One Spoon territory, as well as Treaty 6 territory. I'd like to begin by welcoming several staff from Tangled Arts and Disability, including Kayla, who is the Public Education Coordinator, uh, Sean, who is the Director of Programming, and Francis, who is the Communications Coordinator. Um, and I'd also like to welcome Connor, who is one of the external consultants who supported Tangled with a digital accessibility audit. Uh, looking closely at some of the AGGV's virtual spaces. Um, welcome, everyone. Perhaps we could start by having each of you introduce yourselves and share a little bit about your work at Tangled or beyond. This is Kayla speaking. Marina, thanks for having us today. Uh, my name is Kayla Bessie. I am Tangled's public education coordinator, so that makes me one half of our communications team with Francis here. And uh, we do yeah, all the digital communications at the gallery, as well as um, educational resource creation and sharing. And I also co-host a podcast of our own at Tangled called Crypt Times. I can go next. Uh, I'm Frances Tompkins. I'm the communications coordinator at Tangled. So I'm the other half of our communications team. And uh, I do the things that Kayla described as well. And something else we do as a comms team is occasionally work with other galleries or arts institutions and let them know about some of the ways that we make our communications more accessible at Tangled and um, kind of explore ways with them that they can make their communications accessible as well. My name's Sean Lee. I'm the director of programming at Tangled. So a lot of what I do is kind of um, around the uh, programming aspects, uh, you know, uh, organizing our exhibitions and kind of thinking through the overall long-term um, goals of the organization. And yeah, that is me. And I'll pass it over to you, Connor. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. I'm Connor. I'm here in Edmonton, Alberta, which is on Treaty 6 territory. I'm a deaf, queer artist. I'm a creator, a writer, and a performer, amongst many other things. I also do communications advisory work, public relations, and I also look at accessibility audits, which is something I have just completed here with Tangled Arts and AGGV. So that would be me in a nutshell. Amazing. Thank you so much, everyone. So I, I guess what I wanted to do is just start the podcast episode with a bit of a shout out to the Feminist Art Field School. Um, for those people who might be listening to this podcast, um, 
The Feminist Art Field School was a previous HGV program that was co-curated by Michelle Jakes uh, and Chase Joint. And that's where I personally first heard Sean talk about uh, Tangled Arts and the wonderful work that you're doing there. Uh, Sean was one of the special guests in the field school. So that's uh, something that you can listen back to uh, at any point in time on our YouTube channel. Uh, and you'll hear Sean, Chase, and Michelle talk about uh, things like critical access, um, accessible curating, um, access intimacy was an idea that was talked about in that episode that was uh, really interesting as well and kind of a highlight for myself. But more recently, the HGV has had the opportunity to reconnect with Tangled on a digital accessibility project. Um, and we've been calling it a mini digital accessibility audit uh, because, you know, digital tools are always changing. So there's always a need to kind of reevaluate, to revisit digital accessibility. Um, and because everyone has different access needs, right? So digital accessibility is very expansive um, and always ongoing. And so what we were hoping to do today is reflect a little bit on this project, on this mini digital accessibility audit. Um, and what we were trying to do was create a really, or what we hope to do was create a really non-hierarchical process um, a project that wasn't necessarily just directed by HGV. So um, we began by inviting Sean, Kayla, and Francis to kind of explore, critique from an outside perspective, a variety of the HGV's virtual channels. Um, and we decided to focus on some of our more highly used channels like the website, the HGV magazine, uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, and YouTube. Um, then Sean, Kayla, and Francis invited two additional consultants. Uh, Danica, who isn't able to join us today, shared specific feedback from a lived blind and low vision perspective. Uh, and Connor, who is with us today, shared actionable feedback on HGV's digital platforms from a lived uh, deaf perspective. So that's a very uh, kind of basic summary, I guess, of the project. And so I was curious to open up to all of you and just ask how you decided to respond to this open-ended process. Um, I'm curious if anybody would be willing to summarize for podcast listeners where you took this original invitation uh, and what unfolded for you. This is Sean. Um, I can maybe start and Francis, Kayla, Connor, feel free to jump in at any point. But um, I think for us, this was a really great opportunity to engage with uh, a platform as consultants from the perspective of uh, kind of a lateral way of thinking, kind of a horizontal way of thinking. Um, in particular, like we we've tangled as often approached um as almost like the quote-unquote experts and i think we want to move away from that sort of binary way of thinking of of you know there are the experts and then those who are kind of receiving that knowledge and we instead wanted to approach this recognizing that we all come to it with different lived experiences 
And so an important part of this was bringing, you know, outside um, consultants um, into this into this fold and recognizing that we're not necessarily representing, you know, our community with a single perspective, but rather approaching it as our own experience of these platforms. And I think for us, um, it was really interesting to develop kind of the different goals and the different ways that we're approaching these platforms, because they they can so often be very inherently inaccessible. And we've encountered that a lot. But I think, um, you know, to, to give credit to the AGGV and particular to Reagan Shum, who had done a lot of work before, we were quite, I think, pleasantly surprised when approaching this. And so we felt that we were able to bring in outside um, consultants um, to sort of come at it from a very like open place, not needing to create a lot of like, okay, here's, here's like where the um, problems we think are like, we, we didn't, I don't feel like we needed to create too much, um, of a backstory in some ways we were able to just approach it openly. Um, and I think to, to its credit, that's, that's because of the work that was already done by, you know, disability arts workers. And, um, in particular, you know, I, I think Reagan Trump did a lot. Reagan, you know, I think being a past guest, I wanted to just give a bit of a shout out to that. Um, and I don't know if Francis, Kayla, Connor, you want to add to that? Yeah. Um, Sean, I love what you said about, um, not being positioned as the experts and being able to approach the project from kind of like a peer, um, way. I think something that we often come up against when we're doing this type of consultation work is being asked for a sort of checklist or a um, like a one-size-fits-all approach to accessibility where um, we can sort of just deliver these 10 things that you need to do and then you'll be accessible. Um, and accessibility doesn't usually work that way. Um, so this was a really fun project for me because, you know, um, we're really used to working in the accessible communication realm. So there are certain things that we kind of suggest every time, such as image descriptions or captioning videos or things like that. But it was great to be able to explore this project and see things that um, for me, at least, I was really inspired by like seeing that the um, hashtag uh, WIP podcast had ASL interpretation um, and that the ASL was split screen with um, the podcast was something that was really exciting um, and that I hadn't seen before. So that was something that I wouldn't even necessarily have thought to suggest, but it was something that I got to learn from and um kind of built on my ideas of what um, could be done in in accessible communications. So that was really great. I just wanted to add on some of my experiences as well. I basically showed up, did my work, and then I left. There wasn't a chance to have follow-up dialogue based on what I had found. So it's nice to have that. The time I spent looking through the platform, the website, and whatever issues I came across was great. It really empowered me to give specific feedback. The AGGV has already done a lot of great things in terms of accessibility. 
And that was fantastic to see. It made me realize this organization is on the right path and they're going to get to where they need to be. It was just nice to see that and recognize it, you know, basically saying good job, pat on the back for this. And now there's other ways we could actually expand upon this and make it better. I think that's a better approach than, well, here's your report. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. And you're missing this. So here you go. Have fun for the next two years, making it more accessible. I didn't really think that was the best approach. I just think, you know, it's important to be involved and that's not the right way to advocate. So um, I didn't want to be that harsh person to show up and go, hey, here's what's the problem. So this was a different experience. This was nice. And really, I was impressed. And I am really excited to see where things are headed to from here. Yeah, I think, as you've all noted, we weren't starting from zero access with AGGV. There's so much excellent work that had already been done. And I think something that is important to remind ourselves, or I would remind anybody, if you are starting to think about access in your digital spaces for the first time, is that these platforms don't make access intuitive and you often have to get creative and hack it or crip it in in some way. Um, for example, Twitter only very recently made it so that alt text is visible to all users if it's there on an image rather than just for those using screeners. So while we wait for these social media like giants to do the least, honestly. Um, there are strategies that we can employ when we work together and when, as has been said, we don't get one approach or one person as an expert, but rather um, get creative and kind of playful about how we can work within these like ecosystems that we already have um, in order to invite access into those spaces. Thank you all for sharing those thoughts. Um, I think, you know, part of the hope for this podcast episode as well was to be able to share a little bit about this process um, so that if there are other museums or galleries that want to kind of draw some inspiration um, or structure from it, that they could, you know, maybe listen back and take, take something away for themselves. Um, because like, like you said, digital, access is not just about compliance like it's not just a checklist and I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, you know each organization is very different um, and so the approach that the AGGV is going to have to take might look a little bit different for the types of programs that we're doing but the hope is that we can kind of draw some threads of continuity within this discussion as well and so I think that relates to my next question a little bit, um, which is thinking to the future. I'm curious, how do you imagine that we can further amplify and extend uh, the work that began within this preliminary digital accessibility audit? Um, I'm curious to hear from any of you or all of you uh, what you think institutions like the AGGV can learn from this process and if you have any tips or suggestions for other galleries uh, in terms of approaching digital accessibility. I know on my end, as I, I gave it some thought, I think um, a suggestion did come to mind. Um, when an organization is trying to become accessible uh, for their clients, their consumers, or for the population at large, 
Um, I think that's a step in the right direction, right? Um, we just want to make sure, you know, because we're we're setting up this information and this is for you. And yes, we want to make sure it is being accessed. Um, we also have to think about um, what accessibility looks like and what the priorities would be, right? Like when you wake, when you wake up in the morning, what's your first thought about how to make things more accessible? You know, put your mind in it right from the beginning. Um, and really make sure it's there. And again, the how part of that, right? So I think you have to start uh, with, or with each organization on its own internally. Um, the, the people of that organization need to think about why are we, haven't we been fully accessible up to this point? For example, myself as a deaf artist, if I was working there, um, Wow, you know, there would be, we have a lot of interpreting services available. We would have uh, vlogs and ASL to really increase accessibility for the deaf community. But that's because I'm working there and I'm kind of spearheading that. So those, that's what I'm talking about is when you look at your organization, who's missing? Who's not at the table and who can we bring to that table for accessibility? So I know for me, I felt that was a really strong point. I think the organization can make that change when you think about who's not there. Now, I don't mean just start onboarding new staff. That's not necessarily the answer. I think we need to have a conversation first. Look at our current team. Who's here? who's not here, right? And think about where things have been up to this point. Go, you know what, we really should have this, we really should have that. This isn't, has always been available. You know, I think it's stuff that maybe we already know, but accessibility is waiting, right? And the, the community at large won't know. So I think we gotta have that internal dialogue first and grow from that. And I think that, that will make us ready and, you know, be like really geared up to make this change happen. So that's just one offering I would bring for AGGV plus whoever else uh, might be listening to this podcast right now. Uh, if you have the power to do that and get that first meeting going, I would say, please do. This is Kayla again. A face that I don't know who exactly to attribute this to in my experience. I think it comes out of the relaxed performance communities, which is, when, when thinking and talking about access, um, if you build it, they might come, by which I mean, um, you can't expect to just, for example, okay, we, we've done um, ASL vlogs now, or we have translation, or we have audio description, but if you don't adequately share and publicize and advertise and do outreach to those communities, they're not going to know that they've been invited in. And there might be a period of um, frustration or disappointment that the disability community is maybe not um, engaging or hanging out with you um, in the ways that you might expect. So access does not automatically equal access to community. Um, so I think step one is doing these technical pieces and learning these practical skills for access. And a really important ongoing step is that relationship building piece um, so that you can be in dialogue and in genuine relationship with disability and deaf communities. Yeah, those are both um, really great points. I think something I would add to that is um, patience and commitment to keeping up with um, whatever access features you've committed to, even if you're not seeing like a quote unquote return on investment in your audience participation right away. Um, because if um, like if I'm a community member and I need a certain access feature to be able to come to your space and enjoy what you're offering, um, and I'm told that that's going to be there, um, if I show up and it's not there, 
chances are you've, you've lost me. Like I am probably not going to want to engage in your space in the future. Um, so, you know, if, if you're promising something to a community, um, having that be a really strong commitment, um, is great. And I think part of that is to have it be, um, an institutional decision. So not just one department or not just one, um, you know, event, um, but really have it be a commitment that's across the board. I just want to echo what everyone else is saying. And and I think access, you know, is a part of disability culture, right? These practices are motivated to really allow disability to shape culture rather. Um, and I think we can't just use accessibility as this way to slide disabled folks into normative practices. And so as you build your um, access. Um, I think it, it, it's the, the, for me, the sort of next step inherently is to bring the community in and to allow us to make those choices um, and the aesthetic choices around access rather than uh, be dictated uh, how access is kind of given to us, you know. Yeah, thank you all for all of those thoughts. I really, really appreciate what you said about relationship building and commitment and consistency. I just, I also feel like a lot of capacity around um, digital accessibility and digital content and digital engagement and digital programming was built throughout the pandemic, right? So many museums were online. And so I guess part of what we're asking um, is how can we hold on to these new access features in meaningful ways and not let them fade away? Um, and also like how we can make them better. Um, and then I guess juggling that with the fact that uh, at least in the HDVs experience, our capacity has um, shifted over the years. And we've been able to offer different access features at different points in time. So uh, my follow-up question then is, in, in your opinion, what are some of the best ways for arts organizations to uh, disseminate and to foreground and to promote their current access features. And uh, I guess the related question is, how can arts organizations create a uh, warm and welcoming feel in digital spaces for disabled audiences? Honestly, as uh, someone from the deaf community, and this might actually spill over to other disabled, um, but Honestly, I would say if you are providing food, people are going to come. <laughs> Flat out. Uh, it's it's there. So, I mean, if you're having an event, it's a social gathering, it's mingle. Interpreters are there for access to sign language. Almost run it like an open house, you know. So maybe a small presentation about here's what we've been doing to really improve our accessibility. And, you know, I think something like that would be great as well. But make it kind of a social event. Um, so that way, the, the space, uh, it has an active feel for it. And then the deaf community would want to come. People are like, wow, that was a really good night. I can't believe they did this, you know? you know, And they're doing something else again next month. I think I'm going to come back to this because it had that feeling to it. So, I mean, right almost like a party, I would say, right? I mean, you know, Debbie, we, we party too. And I mean, if we want to wear masks, let's wear masks. But we like to do that too. So, I mean, I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel here. Sometimes something simple like this 
to get the community involved, it really does work. So, and I think one event might be not be enough, maybe have a couple of events or have it annually. So we kind of always have that same feeling getting refreshed as we go along. Um, I think one thing that I would really like to see more art spaces start doing is telling us, being more upfront um, if you have an event or a program or something about what kind of access features are in that program, but also what access features aren't in that program. It's really difficult when you need a certain access feature to engage with the space and you're online and looking at um, the event posting or Facebook post and you just can't find any information about um, whether that feature is, is present. Um, and this can help open a conversation with communities as well, because you're you're showing that you have an awareness that, um, you know, you're you still have work to do or you're being transparent about the types of um, resources that you do have or where you're at as an institution. Um, I think sometimes um, galleries or institutions are kind of afraid to do this because they don't want to look like they don't care or they're doing something wrong. Um, but that type of transparency can actually be really helpful. Um, another thing to kind of uh, work off Connor's point is, yeah, if you have food at your at your opening or your event, people will come. And I think this is part of accessibility too. Like if we can open up our concept of what access is to um, include sort of that element of intersectionality. Like we know that disabled people are disproportionately affected by poverty, unfortunately. So having food at your events is access. Having free childcare at your events is access. You know, having events that don't have a cover charge is access. So yeah, having having like a more broad sense of what accessibility is as well is really helpful um, and inviting to a lot of folks. This is kind of a bit of a follow-up question. What would be the equivalent to providing food at a digital event? That's a great question. Um, Tangled did this once during the pandemic. I believe it was in December, like over the holiday season um 2020 so we weren't gathering in person at all and we would have normally had an end of year some kind of food-based event um but because that didn't feel safe and accessible to our community um Tangled provided us all with uh money to order whatever takeout we wanted to have together and we gathered on zoom and we still shared meal time and space and social time um, so I know depending on the size of the event, that might not always be feasible, but I've thought a lot actually about the money that large institutions have probably not spent on hospitality um, over the pandemic because their idea of hospitality is so narrow in, oh, it's catering in a physical space and it's cheese and crackers and alcohol. Um, but if you could give each person even $10 to get themselves a treat to sit on a digital event with you, um, that would be an incredible offering if that was, you know, in the budget. Um, and making that time for like loose engagement um, and like casual socialization when it can feel like our time is so regimented when everything's on Zoom and so um, rigidly organized, like still leaving that space for a feeling of casual encounter and into somebody when you both like go to grab a snack or whatever. 
Yeah, I was also going to uh, point to our hashtag Crip Ritual exhibition that uh, happened. Uh, it was the last exhibition we had, which opened in January of 2021. And we developed um, a bit of like a care package for folks um, who are visiting because you know, so we we were we were kind of open in a hybrid model. Folks were welcome to physically come to the space to experience our exhibition, but we could also do a remote uh, Zoom tour where essentially folks were brought into the gallery through Zoom. It was very DIY. You know, we did it on like uh, an iPad on a tripod with wheels, and we just essentially gave folks and experience of coming into the gallery digitally. And we were able to, you know, um, give tours that way. We were able to do audio description that way. We were able to bring in ASL interpreters if needed um, for the for these kind of one-on-one meetings. And, um, it, you know, at the end of it, because often in our shows, we have some sort of sensory experience or some sort of takeaway, we wanted to expand on what that could look like um and so we created these relatively uh, you know humble care packages you know i would have a button and a takeaway with like a little zine um and maybe a packet of tea for folks to just kind of you know read read through the zine and enjoy a cup of tea and you know take a button with them so i i felt like that was sort of an equivalent in some ways maybe not equivalent but um, another way of engaging, you know, the senses, um, digitally. And it was really well received, I think, from the community. And in fact, some folks said that they preferred the remote version of coming to the show over physically coming in person. I love all those ideas. Um, and I kind of love how you answered my question about what's the digital equivalent to food with food, right? Like nothing can replace it. Um, To be able to create that around the dinner table kind of feel, um, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. But that's just just a part of experience that we need to not abandon just because we're in engaging in digital spaces. So um, I love all of those thoughts. Um, and I think those ideas about care packages, gifts, takeout, or money for food are all wonderful ideas. And why not, right? Like, what is the responsibility of larger institutions to engage in these ways? Just, I guess, an open-ended question. Um, I, I'm kind of thinking about something that's switching gears a little bit, but it's something that you mentioned, Kayla, in one of our previous meetings that I would love to uh, expand on, if you're willing. And it has to do with this idea of writing um, and barriers to writing, uh, you know, things relating to image descriptions and alt text. The, The question that's come up at the AGGV is, are there ways to use language that is specific to blind or low vision experiences? Like, is there a course that we need to take? Uh, what if we do it wrong? Um, but you brought up this idea uh, when we were talking last time about alt text as poetry. And so I'm really interested to hear you expand on that idea for podcast listeners about how digital access can be both practical and creative at the same time. Absolutely. Happy to talk about that. Yeah. First of all, all the credit to 
Shannon Finnegan and Bojana Kokliat. Am I saying their name properly? Yes. Um, for creating the alt text as poetry resources that all of us at Tangled know and love. So they are both uh, disabled artists who have created this resource that I encourage everyone to look up. I believe it's alttextaspoetry.net. And the ethos of alt text as poetry is that no, you can't really do it wrong. I mean, you will get better at alt text with practice, but um, I like to think in the simplest terms, okay, if I'm looking at an image or imagine I'm standing in a gallery looking at a painting, how would I describe it to a blind friend who is with me, right beside me, if they ask me to describe it in my own words? So I think leaning into subjectivity can be a really beautiful creative choice um, and not trying to just be so literal and objective because art, of course, is so subjective. So while you might describe the physical characteristics, colors, textures of a piece, you might also be a little more abstract and say, oh, it gives me a feeling of, you know, being warm or whatever it might be, and draw on other sensory experiences or other metaphors even um, that get across the felt sense of a piece or the size or the emotion that you feel in your body um, when you encounter that artwork. So yeah, Alt Texas Poetry is a really beautiful offering from and for the community. And I would say just practice if you're nervous about quote unquote getting it right. Um, I would encourage everyone, you know, on your personal social accounts. So if you post something on your personal Instagram, get in the habit of writing that alt text every time. Um, it's a good move as an ally, as someone who is seeing. Um, and it's also just really awesome practice to find your voice as someone who writes alt text, which I think is a discrete, almost genre Um of writing at, at this point that I would encourage every artist and every person who participates online to get in the habit of using. Thank you so much, Kayla. Um, I hadn't heard of that resource before. Um, you all brought it up in your audit materials. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's something that other people can access as well if they're interested. Did anyone else want to add anything onto that before I go on to my last question that I had prepared? I'm good. Awesome. Okay. So I guess to kind of bring us closer to the end of this uh, conversation, the the consultation um, and some of the things that we've talked about today, you know, really looked at things like closed captions, ASL interpretations, um, image descriptions, voiceover software, video relay services, having strong contrasting visuals in designs, uh, website navigation, like these are all very prescriptive things when we're talking about digital accessibility. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of people listening to this might know, or I hope they know that accessibility is so much more than that, right? It's so much more than websites and we've all kind of spoken to that already as well. So I was curious to just kind of open up the scope of the conversation at this point in relation to anything that you want to share really uh, in relation to systemic barriers, access to technology uh, is a big one, the needs of 
individuals of different abilities, genders, circumstances. Um, I'm curious if anyone would be willing to just expand on this idea of access in, a, in the broadest sense um, or to speak to like, what else is it that arts organizations should be paying attention to on their digital accessibility journeys? And yeah, I think maybe all of this relates to a term that you brought up as well, disability justice. So I, I know that's kind of like a lot of questions all in one um, and feel free to respond to that however you want to, however you'd like, but I thought it would be interesting to just open up the conversation at this point. Um, I have a thought ready to go here. So a lot to take in, but I think in terms of disability justice, yes, uh, that really does uh, tie into accessibility and it's political, right? I mean, providing food, for example, to the community, that's a political act right there, right? So, I mean, our governments do not provide enough resources for people. So artists are having to take on the onus to feed people, right? So there's definitely some politics behind this when we consider this. Um, my hope for AGGV and other organizations as well, in terms of, you know, making sure accessibility is there. You know, yes, there's certain things you want to do, and yes, you want to implement those, and then maybe in three months we'll revisit. And I, I realize that it can become a list of checkboxes and everything, but I think the ultimate goal is it becomes habitual so that, you know, organizations have accessibility built in there within the, with their institutions and that these institutions are functioning higher now. Right. And the experience uh, to be an ally and a voice for the disabled, you know, the advocates involved with the politics behind this. And so really, um, you know, lobbying governments for, you know, legal, legal change, for example, that would really, you know, really tighten up what all organizations have to do, that we have a higher standard of expectation. And now everyone has to do it to see those kinds of changes would be nice for the disabled community, um, for myself and for Tangled Arts, you know. And so, you know, you kind of get used to after a while, you're always lobbying, you're always, you know, you, you show up at meetings, you know, you're giving presentations. And so we want that to continue. But I think if other organizations are doing it as well, you know, they might not have disability part of their name, right? They're just, um, for example, they're just part of the greater Vancouver area, whatever it might be, but having other people come and show up and talk about this. And we really believe in this, and this is important. This is change that needs to happen. You know, once word gets out, um, I think it's going to go viral and we need that support there too. And we really, you know, it, being political, it will affect elections. You will see people talk about it. So I just think that's definitely part of my thoughts here. So that's kind of the first half of my thought process as I'm working my way through it here. I'm also thinking about digital and online access, you know, news articles and whatnot here. I'm starting to get a feeling of it's a little bit, um, there's some dread for that, for, for, for it. And let me just explain why I have that feeling. Um, one of the concepts now that is being spread out there is metaverse the metaverse all right so that concept is out there so this idea of you know really networking looking at a global response and uh you know being able to see and access that right and we can actually like it's basically a lens to view our own world with and you know it's the world might not be what you think kind of thing so everyone's talking about the metaverse right now right and i just think um it's gonna grow it's only gonna get bigger and bigger and bigger and at the same time, um, I think, you know, those in the disabled community often get left behind and we're almost ready for it. We're expecting this. We haven't seen any discussions about um, 
how to bring us on board, right? So if you're meeting a deaf person, right? And you might be a million miles apart, whatever it is, and you want to engage online and talk to each other and share parts of the world, how are they going to understand each other? One person's deaf, the other one speaks. Um, how, how do I make that communication happen? Do, do they sign? Do they know any sign? No one's even talking about this. You know, as viral as this is, it's happening, but no one's talking about it, right? And I mean, look at captioning, for example. I mean, even like 30 years ago, that wasn't a normal practice, right? And there's no laws for it even to provide that accessibility. And that's in all of North America. So we're constantly fighting just for basic captioning to have online now. And now this new metaverse is taking off and we can already see where this is going to go. I think we need more voices out there from our communities to really push for this now. And as this, as the metaverse grows, accessibility grows with it. So I'm, I'm just, again, I'm just kind of uh, unfiltered laying this out here. So I'm just hoping that some food for thought for people out there is uh, think twice, actually, right? So this way we have the right lens as we go forward. I think that was beautifully put, Connor. I mean, I think access is political work. And what you're saying about the metaverse makes me think about just, you know, the idea of critical access kind of, which which was a um, concept put forward by Amy Hamrai, um, really helps us to understand that like oftentimes the idea around accessibility is that unless it benefits everyone, it doesn't make economic sense. And I think we need to move away from that. Like that's that, that, that understanding that, oh, if it only benefits my bottom dollar, then I'm gonna implement access. But we really need to move away from that way of understanding accessibility and have uh, to, to really be able to trouble this neoliberal concept that um, access, you know, has to always uh, be this, this kind of universal good that benefits everyone. I think deaf and disabled folks need access and we take it up as this never finished project that is always evolving, that's always changing and is always dependent on our relationships with one another. You know, it's it's a really co-designed process and it might not be always easy or cost effective, but I think it is human. And I think it does give us a better understanding of how we can create care in our community that's really um in a community that's really shifted away from that, in, in a community that's only ever seen, um, or like in a, in a capitalist society that's only ever seen us as our production and as the dollar signs that we can bring in. Um, I think disability justice is really the antidote to capitalism in some ways. And so I think what you're bringing up, particularly in the metaverse, which is like this <laughs> highly capitalist sort of development without any sort of, or at least it seems there's no, there's no consideration for disabled folks, right? Deaf, mad, disabled folks at all. Um, and so I, I think, you know, we, we all need to bet, have a better, more critical um, and political understanding of access because the choices we make when we're creating access really goes beyond just the audiences that are being served and the artists that are being served, but it's actually a political statement on how it is that we understand um, the systems that make up our world. And it, it goes kind of meta, but I feel like the question you asked was very meta. So, um, yeah, that's the end of my thought. Hey, this is Francis speaking. Um, yeah, what both of you are saying is really reminding me of um, so in disability justice, there are these 10 principles that are set 
forward. Um, and one of them is collective liberation. And so in the words of Sins Invalid, uh, the collective that kind of has put forward these 10 principles, it's no body or mind can be left behind. And only moving together can we accomplish the revolution we require. So I think um, a lot of the time, or in, at least I've seen sometimes, like institutions or galleries will be accessible in some ways and still wondering why um, disabled folks aren't showing up. And I think sometimes the reason behind this can be that that political element is being left behind. Um, I don't think that we can truly be spaces that um, are committed to disability justice if we're not also um, interrogating the ways that we are um, behaving on stolen land and you know, thinking about the ways in which we are or are not being um, like meaningfully anti-racist um, and, and things like that. Like those are elements that sometimes don't enter the conversation, I think, in ways that they really need to in order for justice to really be like a word that's being used as opposed to just like we are a space that uses captions, you know, like I think those are two really different things that sometimes get talked about in the same way um yeah yeah I, I absolutely agree with everything you've all said and that was the reason for this kind of very meta question as you put it Sean um I think there's a lot of learning and unlearning to do um like this whole conversation seems to be linked back to how can we um, decolonize our spaces? How can we queer our spaces? How can we make our spaces accessible? Um, and I, I mean that in the digital sense as well, right? Because digital doesn't automatically mean accessible. Um, and those um, ableist structures, those inaccessible structures, they definitely exist in digital space too. Um, and there are just as many access barriers in digital spaces as in physical ones. Um, so yeah, thank you all so much for your willingness to share and just reflect on this process. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to say this in a way that doesn't make it feel like it's the end because this was like a mini digital accessibility audit, but it was just the start, right? Like this is a journey. And I think that's something that we've tried to emphasize throughout the project is that we want to continue to work with all of you um, and to continue to build access in different ways. And so this is not the end, this is just a bit of a reflection point along the way. So I really, really appreciate all of you um, being willing to share your thoughts um, and your time. Thank you so much, Kayla, Sean, Francis, and Connor for sharing your thoughts with us today. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the WIP podcast. This podcast series is generously supported by a Canada Council for the Arts Digital Now grant. For those who want to learn more about this podcast or other AGGV projects and programs, head over to aggv.ca. And visit our YouTube channel to check out WIP podcast episodes with ASL interpretations and captions.